0: Brought to you by Impact Alpha. From Impact Alpha Media, this is Returns on Investment, a show about the Impact Investing Marketplace. Live on tape from New York City, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the financial technology company Liquinet. Hi everyone. On today's show, we're featuring an interview with Clara Miller. Claire is president of the F.B. Heron Foundation, and she recently wrote an essay called Building a Foundation for the 21st Century. In it, she makes the case that philanthropy just can't clean up the problems created by the rest of the economy. Instead, she sketches an approach that puts all of a foundation's assets to work for the public good. David Bank, editor of Impact Alpha and a regular panelist on returns on investment, recently had a good chat with Clara. Let's jump right to that interview.
1: Hello, this is David Bank. I'm here with Clara
0: Miller, President of the
1: FB heron Foundation. Hi, Clara. Hello Thanks for joining us. Uh, I want to get into this terrific essay, but first I just want to hear a little bit about about yourself. I know a little bit about your resume, but I don't really know about sort of your, your personal background and how you came to your convictions and your and your passions. So just tell us you know sort of where you came from
2: well i I came from a ball college town in New Hampshire and in a way, I think you hatch from the egg and you see a certain kind of community and you imagine that that's the way things should be. <laughs> and, and so I suppose that, you know, going to town meetings with my grandmother when I was a kid, that definitely was important to me.
1: So the, the, the classic American democracy of small-town New England.
2: Yeah, yeah. And uh, I can tell you it was definitely in full cry when I was a kid. We we were very involved in politics, took it very seriously, and, and actually had civil and civic discourse at the most grassroots level about a whole bunch of issues that are still with us today.
1: And you've uh, taken that forward. I know before, Heron, you were at the Nonprofit Finance Fund, but how do you come to this? I know the thread that seems to run through this is tackling Poverty, income inequality, you know shared prosperity, how do you come to those to those values
2: that That's an interesting kind of journey, I guess. Uh, I certainly never felt like I lived a life of poverty, but I knew children uh, in my school who were definitely poor, people who were trying to subsist by running a farm in New Hampshire, uh, really struggled to make a living. But what was interesting about the world, as I saw it anyway, was that we all went to the same school, (laughs) and some of those kids, you know, were able to really rise and go to uh, major colleges, universities, or just to make a good living for themselves. And I think it was a little bit a different type of economy that existed then, or at least I can imagine it was. I, I am on guard for my own sentimentality. <laughs> However, <laughs> I think things have changed and they and we have to make the best of them the way they are now.
1: Well that that's a good a good segue because I know that one of the the things that Heron is now known for and and under your tenure is this sort of hundred percent for impact idea that all the assets of the foundation, both grants and investments and, and everything else, you know, need to be going for mission. So tell us a little bit about that, but then I want to actually get to what I think is the the point of that, which is, um, you know, trying to tackle some of the more systemic roots of, of poverty or systemic roots of inequality. But first, tell us about how you, you know, when you arrived at Heron and, and just what you set out to do.
2: Yes, I had, um, as you mentioned, I'd been at the nonprofit finance fund for a long time. I was the founder and had been there uh, for for almost 30 years. And in that time, I learned a lot about how the not-for-profit sector works and doesn't work and what it's meant to do and not meant to do. And, of course, foundations are part of the nonprofit sector. And so when I arrived at Heron, it was in the wake of the banking crisis, and Heron had been a social investor. A nonprofit finance fund also had financed not-for-profits, sometimes side-by-side with Heron, and we were an investee. So there was a kind of a similar view, worldview, in a way, of the market and the role of nonprofits. And Heron had come far down the path, investing 40% of its, of its uh, endowment by that time. So we all kind of gathered around. And we said, well, gee, we've got to face the fact that something has gone awry. And that something is that people are worse off than when we started the foundation in 1992. And, you know, poverty has increased despite all of our, meaning the Heron Foundation's, best efforts and that of a lot of our allies and some really good battles being won. But the war was clearly being lost. And so we all Kind of looked at each other, and, and, like, and it, like a lot of our colleagues, we had focused on asset — you know, kind of access to various kinds of asset building, home ownership, credit, job training. And what that kind of approach did was to assume that on the other side of building those assets, on the other side of getting a loan to buy a home, there was a reliable job. For that homeowner, that would mean that having that home, having that stability, would launch the the, the, the person into another another segment of society or way of life, or set of opportunities.
1: So that asset-building strategy had been very popular uh, as an anti-poverty strategy before the crisis, as you say, right? Um,
2: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it was the dominant one, and, and it worked for a while. <laughs> It just as long as, as long as
1: as long as housing prices went up, that was that was helpful.
2: <laughs> that was helpful, <laughs> but but more importantly, as long as there was reliable employment, because of course it's more important really to have access to reliable revenue if you're because that's what gives an asset value, as opposed to necessarily capital to finance the asset. And that reliable revenue for a larger and larger proportion of Americans was going away. So so then, then it, we said to ourselves, gee, we've got to really start looking at why jobs are going away. If we're going to have people actually move up the economic ladder, if opportunity is going to continue to broaden, we made the assumption that there had to be more work and more means of support for more people. And once you do that, then you say to yourself, well, gosh, we've got to be dealing with the whole economy and with the kinds of enterprises that provide jobs. And those aren't always not for, that doesn't, that includes, but doesn't, not only grants to nonprofits. And so we continued, you know, Heron's trajectory. We said, gosh, every, every Heron asset is a, is an asset for mission. Uh, we, why are we stopping at 40%? We should, you know, make it 100%. In fact, we believe that we're in breach of our fiduciary responsibility unless we are using 100% of our assets for mission. And beyond that, we think we should break down the wall between grant making and investing because in, in a way we want to say the, the economy needs to be integrative. It can't just be that you have a kind of a clean-up crew of nonprofits on the outside and a group of, of by implication, um, private companies that can forget about their impact or their externalities, their impact on people and planet. Using it, with, you know, nonprofits have a very ambivalent business model which is, you know, to work so hard at making things better that there's no need for them anymore. Uh, And that requires that the grant side and the investment side, that the for-profit and the non-profit sectors actually work together, not that they're considered to be in separate moral universes.
1: Well, if you take it to this question of just, you know, beyond sort of the do-no-harm or good environmental practices or whatnot that companies might have, but you take it to actually companies doing something proactive to tackle kind of systematic inequality or systematic poverty are there really ways to influence that in the private
2: sector side you mean on the part of investors
1: right so if the notion yeah. is that you can be some kind of catalytic capital to make a different kind of economic system start to emerge you know you know how's that going <laughs>
2: <laughs> we're not there yet, David. <laughs> it, may, it may come as a surprise to you, but we're working on it. Uh, we we believe fairly strongly that you know we have met the enemy, and it is us. In the words of you know, Pogo, I guess it was, or
0: it Walt was Kelly, Pogo, as
2: I recall, um, that we can't uh, solve any systemic problems. The notion that nonprofits and individual investors or individual investors working on their own on specific organizations will have a systemic effect is is wrong. I think that there will be discrete problems solved and breakthroughs made. But if we're actually going to start stanching the flow of problems as well as solving problems, uh, we have to think, think much more systemically. And I think companies very definitely not only can reduce the flow of problems that nonprofits are being asked to solve, but they're the only way we can actually get those problems reduced.
1: I want to read um, just one one section from the essay, which I thought was instructive, which said, what if both sides of the house had worked together? It's possible to imagine a different scenario where a united team of investors and program officers could exchange richer market information and wield more capital and muscle to influence all investors, given the market bellwethers and realities the program side saw and the portfolio knowledge the investment side could access. Might they even have been able to use their philanthropic voice to save the economy trillions and prevent or mitigate the largest stripping of assets from the poor in American history?
2: Yeah, well, a girl can dream. And (laughs) actually, (laughs) actually, I think program officers... People who were in the field, people who were the community development financial institutions of which uh, NFF, which I headed at the time, all of us could see. We kept scratching our heads and saying, why are these organizations and these people, these homeowners, these people are getting loans and they don't have jobs? They were rejected by, the, let's say, the... CDFI, the Community Development Financial Institution, three weeks ago, and now they've got a loan for a house they can't possibly afford. What is going on? And just by way of background, Heron's portfolio of Community Development Financial Institutions was the best performing asset of of any, of all assets, during the financial crash. Just kept kicking over. (laughs) fine. Just, just, for,
0: just for
1: clarity of folks who don't know the, the lingo, a, a CDFI or a community development finance institution is a bank-like entity that focuses on disadvantaged populations?
2: Yes, and, and places where the banks, for one reason or another, have trouble uh, lending. And they often work in partnership with, with large banking institutions. So, so we knew, the field knew, that something was amiss long before, you know, it was registered by, by bond raiders or Wall Street or whoever it was. And I can imagine as we're going forward, Heron's going forward on this journey, we're, we're finding common cause not only with other foundations but with pension funds, with family offices, potentially with other large institutional investors. There's no reason why the investor community could not be, and, you know, we have FASB and other, you know, kind of efforts. There's no reason the investor community can't speak with a strong voice about what it would like to see from the point of view of the importance of combining financial and broadly socially positive results.
1: There's kind of a macro agreement I would say that getting more income into the hands of l- now lower income people has a beneficial effect more demand they buy more stuff and that you know creates more jobs all around. The problem always is who's gonna shoulder that responsibility or, or, or take that plunge and it's often not in the advantage of a, of a single firm to do so. So how do you get around that conundrum yeah. in you know running a business?
2: Yeah, I, I I don't think it's easy. There there are minimum wage efforts around the country. There, some of it probably has to do with regulation. But I also think that investors have a tendency to look down at asset classes rather than at the underlying set of enterprises that give those assets value. And I think if you start looking at the enterprise level, um, one of the things that tends to happen is kind of an a overscaling of enterprises that continues to drive profits up the food chain, as it will. It's, it's almost like you, know, you get a big, huge fishing boat rather than a lot of small craft. And what happens is that that fishing boat is incredibly efficient, and it goes out and it overfishes the, the fishing ground, and all those small boats don't get anything. And so I think that there's a kind of mini above which size there's less sharing among a larger group of organisms, let's say fish or smaller businesses. And that profitability is driven to a place where it's not actually creating broad value for society. It's actually stripping the whole ecosystem.
1: I'm hearing echoes of your small-town New England upbringing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm afraid, you know, guilty is charged. I don't think every, I don't think every, uh, every kind of enterprise has to be tiny at all. But as as a dear friend of mine, Fran Barrett once says, you know, it's not as if everybody wants their favorite little neighborhood Italian restaurant to be an Olive Garden. So, so there is a point where diminishing returns set in. You know, on the other hand, I also am really happy when a large utility company comes with its large machines and cleans up after a storm. So there, there are kind of appropriate sizes for for various kinds of uh, undertakings in society. And I think in many cases we have stripped the economy in a similar way to overfishing, and that we and banking, I think, is one of them. Where you know the huge banks are not adding value in the way that smaller community banks actually still are.
1: So you know where is this all going? You mentioned, I think, in the in the letter, um, you know, there's various other developments. There's um, people point to Mark. Zuckerberg's decision to uh, actually not create a foundation with some of his Facebook wealth, but to create what's, what's really structured as an LLC, to, to have more flexibility, I think, in what kinds of investments they make. The um, Ford Foundation has been you know making noises about putting more of their endowment as well as their um, grant side budget towards impact. Where, where, where do you see the, the field going?
2: I think that the field is going toward more and more impact investing. Ford is going that direction. Craigie is clearly going that direction. Jordan of foundation here in New York is so that's happening already. But then to your point about Mark Zuckerberg and many family offices, the millennials who are starting to, have, you know, not only have their own wealth but in some cases inherit family wealth, are very clear that they really want to invest their capital now for a better economy. They don't they see the, the system breakdown uh and they want to think big about about those opportunities. And and I think that the reality of it's important to remember, people are often you know, say, well why don't why doesn't the Gates Foundation just finance schools in America? And and the reality is if you took all of the endowment of the Gates Foundation. In fact, all of the endowment of every foundation in the United States, Ford and MacArthur and Gates and Hewlett, you know, all the big ones, and add them together and all the little ones too, it would be fourteen months of the US public school budget. That's it. K through twelve. It would be gone.
1: So the implication is you have to find a a a, a, a systemic way to fix it, not a Not not you can't just pour the money in.
2: Yeah. This is not this can't be operating revenue for business as usual. Foundations have to be catalytic capital because they don't we don't have enough money to play a different financial role.
1: What's been the reaction, um, not only to the essay itself, but just, you know, you've been public in in other contexts about this sort of all for mission and the big big economy and the small nonprofit budgets. What, What kind of reaction do you get?
2: Well, it's really generally pretty positive. I think that the people who aren't, who maybe aren't so positive aren't telling me. But I think that it's very hard to say, well, actually... You know, it's not part of Foundation's fiduciary responsibility of obedience to mission to make sure that all their assets are invested in alignment with their mission. I don't think there hasn't, nobody stood up and said, that's outrageous. It's usually the opposite, which is that people turn around and say, well, isn't that what Foundations already do? (laughs) So, it is a moment of truth for Foundations. I think that the world is kind of going this way, I think we could easily become irrelevant if we don't really look very carefully at how we can have the most uh, social value.
1: I think you said when you started this review, you know, that you looked back from maybe 92 to to, to 2012 or so, so maybe 20 years from saying, you know, we'd won some battles, but we're losing the war. If you look forward, say, to maybe 2032, let's say, uh, you know, winning only battles, losing battles, winning the war, losing the war?
2: Well, I'm an optimist. I I wouldn't be in this business if I weren't. I think that more and more what we're talking about and what our allies and, and buddies are talking about will become standard. That the idea that there was ever a time when Companies could say these are externalities. Somebody else is going to take care of, you know, whatever it is. DuPont's pollution of of um, you know <laughs> its its surrounding area, or Volkswagen's fraud, or you know BP's oil spills, whatever it is. That's over. Um, investors have bellwethers. Investors have a very robust set of metrics and information that enable them to factor those things in that are essentially material risk to investors. And mission investors can also layer onto that material risk to mission, right, you know, right alongside. And it will be standard to do the kind of thing we're dogging about. And that will help make the world a better place.
1: Well, thank you, Clara. It's always a treat to to talk with you. Thanks for being with us today.
2: Likewise, David. It's really good to be with you. Thank you.
0: That's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. If you like the show, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to give us a rating. If you don't like the show, well, just keep it to yourself. Or you can send us an email with comments or suggestions to info at impactalpha.com. For more on the Impact Investing Marketplace, visit us at impactalpha.com and follow us on Twitter at impactalpha. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thanks, Isaac. In New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Until next time, this has been Returns on Investment.